question and answer. Now, just so you know, just so that there's no temptation for a bait and switch, um, we begin um, here as a church with the Word of God. We believe that God's Word is true, all 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. And so we have a firm belief that that's what, when we're asking questions of God, we want to look in the Bible and see what He has to say. Now, if you have questions about how the Bible came to be or what the Bible even is, those questions you can, you can ask. But we've also included a paper, a short one-page paper, at the welcome desk written by one of our elders, Jeff Palin, who can, that can explain what the Bible is and what we're trying to, what, how we understand what the scriptures are. So what I'll do is speak for 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll open the floor up for questions and answers. Uh, we'll have a microphone here, or you can use the phone number to text in any questions you might have. So that's the plan. Now, as you, as a church, have, have canvassed your acquaintances and inquired of your friends and asked your family, the most common question we received is some version of the following. How can a good God, who is all-powerful, allow evil and suffering in his world? That's the question, bar none, hands down. And that's a good question. As long as people have walked the earth, they've been asking this question. Why is this world crowded with so much evil? Why do the strong so often claim innocent blood? Why are the vulnerable and weak exploited by the heavy hand of oppressors? And why does God seem to sit idly by doing nothing? That was by far the most common question we received. Here's a smattering of an example of the kinds of questions we got. Specific ones. Why did you make my brother suffer so much? Remember, this is asking God one question. Why do we have infirmities, especially in children? Why did children have to die? They did nothing wrong. Why did my sister-in-law have to die so young? Why did my daughter die in a car accident? Why did you take my best friend so soon? I believed in a miracle and I didn't get it. Why does evil always seem to prevail? These are good questions. These are important questions and we believe that the church is the kind of church should be the kind of place where you can ask any questions, even questions like this. One of the things that we can all see is that this world we live in is brimming with evil. There's all kinds of different evils, but there's natural evil we see. We see natural evil happening on a cosmic scale on a regular basis. Typhoons, miscarriages, childhood leukemia, Alzheimer's, autism, hunger, pestilence, ALS, hurricanes like Ida, blizzards, and many, many, many more natural evils. These kinds of evils have always haunted humanity. And we have examples that pop up on a regular basis. For example, in March of 2011, 20,000 people died in an earthquake that hit the island nation of Japan. 20,000 people. Where was God? Why didn't he stop it? The day after Christmas, 2004, there was a tsunami triggered by an earthquake at the bottom of the Indian Ocean that claimed nearly one quarter of a million lives in one day. Those are recent examples. These, this isn't new. This is the way life has been on this planet. Back in the late 1300s, the Black Plague claimed between 100 and 200 million European lives. Over 100 years ago, the Spanish flu claimed 50 million souls from 1918 to 1920. And we ask, why didn't God stop this evil? If he's good, if he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop this? That's natural evil, and natural evil continues to happen. There's another kind of evil as well that we face on a regular basis, and that 
is moral evil. This is the kind of evil that happens when one person does evil or harm against another person. Natural evil is inexplicable, so often moral evil, moral evil hurts at a different level. This is the kind of evil that has been going on and has led to myriad of atrocities. Moral evil includes things like terrorist attacks, verbal attacks, racism, incest, theft, murder, molestation, war. What a small word that, that incorporates big horrors. Genocide, ethnic cleansing. Moral evil has always been with us. Some recent examples from the last century, which was the deadliest century in the history of humanity when it comes to moral evil, was six million Jews, and that's a conservative number, some say as high as 17 million, were exterminated in World War II. Forty million people were killed by Soviet, the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. That's not to bring up Pol Pot and the other leaders that killed people by the millions. That's just recent. This has always been going on. This kind of moral evil is the order of the day. The Aztec Empire, which flourished hundreds of years ago, sacrificed to their sun god 20,000 people a year. For years. And in 1487, they dedicated a new temple and sacrificed 80,000 people in one day. There are no memorials to these people. Nobody mourns them. History is littered with examples of one person, one people, killing with impunity others. And this is objectively evil. And we have to ask, why didn't God stop this? If we don't ask that question... There's something wrong with us, really. We can't be okay with that kind of evil. But we're also not the first to ask this question. Millennia ago, an Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk, a prophet is somebody who speaks for God, he saw the evil swirling about him, and he cried out to God, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do, you see, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's asking the same question we are today. If God is good, and if God is as powerful as the Bible says... Why doesn't he stop evil? Now, David Hume, who is the Scot a famous Scottish, Scottish philosopher and atheist, had a response to this question. He said, essentially, well, he said, if God is willing to help, but not able to, he's weak. He said, if God is able to help and not willing to, he must not be good. Therefore, because of the presence of evil, God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good. That's what he said, and that is what a lot of people who interact with the God of the Bible or read the Bible or look at the world around us, that's a lot of what they say, and I get where they're coming from. And you do too. There's natural evil, there's moral evil, and we've all experienced evil, all of us. So why doesn't this good God stop it? How can an all-powerful good God allow this level of evil and suffering? So what should we say? More importantly, what does the Bible say? Now I'm going to attempt to summarize the Bible in three brief parts. As you have questions, you can text them in or remember them, and you can get up and ask over here. Just about 15 minutes. 
So why does God, who's purported to be all good and all powerful, allow evil and suffering in the world? First, God doesn't feel the pressure to explain himself. He doesn't anywhere in the Bible explain why he allows evil. Some of you are going to say, where, where did evil come from? Why did he allow it? This philosopher's debate, but the Bible does not directly address. Now, this is clearest in a book called Job. It's spelled like Job, but his name is Job. This is a whole book that tells his story, not his whole life, but a segment of his life. In it, in the first couple chapters, we see Satan, who is the accuser of the followers of God, or the devil, same name, or Beelzebub. He comes to God, and him and God have a conversation, and we get to read about it. God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's great. And Satan says, now I'm summarizing here, right? And Satan says, he's great. He's doing great because you protect him. You don't let anything bad happen to him. And God says, okay. Okay. Take away all he has and let's see how he responds. So in a, in a day, Job lost all of his children. He lost all of his property. And then God gives Satan further, further permission to afflict Job. And Job was afflicted with sores up and down his whole body. And from Job's perspective, he was plunged into meaningless, from his perspective, misery. And so now we as the reader, we're privy to this conversation between God and Satan. But Job never is. He didn't get to watch that video on earth. Job never gets an answer from God about why all this evil befell him. He didn't know that God and Satan had this conversation and that his actions would be recorded in the Bible for us to read all these centuries later. Job, he's writhing in misery and he, it goes so bad and, he, and he, just, he, he can't understand what's going on. He calls curses down upon himself as he wonders at an answer. Now I'm summarizing a lot, but at the end... Out of a whirlwind, we hear the word, we hear God speak to him and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. See what God's doing? He's saying, listen, you have some questions for me? I've got questions for you first. And if you can answer these questions, I'll answer yours. That's the deal. Now, that's not, here's a spoiler, that's not a good deal. It's not going to go well. Because look at the first question God asks Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have, this, have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, Job, when all of that went down? Or where were you, Job, when I shut, when I shut in the sea with, it, with doors, when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. See what he does? He says, Job, here's some basic creation questions I have for you. And if you can't answer these, don't expect me to answer you. Instead, see what God does is he shows Job that if he can't understand something as simple as that, he's not going to be able to understand all the whys and wherefores of what God does and how, why he does it. In other words, God has purposes in allowing evil that Job cannot grasp. God has purposes in allowing evil and suffering that Job cannot grasp. That's difficult. That's difficult to hear, but that's the clear testimony from the Bible. 
even harder to grasp, is that this God, this, the Bible presents this God as all good, all powerful, all knowing, and yet he allows evil in this world without being responsible for it in any way, shape, or form. And we come back to David Hume. He said, remember, if God is willing to help, but unable, he must be weak. If God is able to help, but unwilling, he must not be good. Therefore, because of the presence of evil, God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good. Now, hopefully you see the limitation in his formulation. Essentially, what Hume is saying, and this is what all of us say when we come to God like this, he's saying, if I can't see a reason for the evil and suffering in this world, if I can't see it personally, there must not be a reason. Now, if the God of the Bible is as all-knowing and all-powerful as it says he is, then it only stands to reason that God might have reasons that Hume and others don't understand. Or stated another way, if your God is great enough to be frustrated with for not ending all evil and suffering, it could stand to reason that this God might have a reason that you and I might not be able to understand and that he doesn't rush to explain it to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord, and there are secret things. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, how would we answer the question? God allows evil for reasons we can't understand, but work out in his purposes. Now, that might sound incredibly unsatisfying to you. And if that's where you are, I get it. But hang on. Just because God doesn't feel pressure to explain himself doesn't mean we don't know anything about him. God may not explain himself, but he does reveal himself. God may not explain himself, but he does reveal himself. The way he reveals himself shows us that he is not indifferent toward mankind's the evil they experience or the suffering they experience. How do we know? We know this in the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the way God answers the question, how could a good God allow such suffering, is not with a conversation, it's not with a diagram, it's not with a schematic, but with a visitation. Or rather, the incarnation. That's what, that's what Christians call those, that's what Christians call the coming of Jesus Christ. That's when God became man. Christianity is the only one of the world's religions that has God becoming entirely human. And this is exactly what happened when Jesus Christ entered the world he created as a baby and was born in the little hamlet of Bethlehem so long ago. The creator God entered his evil world full of suffering as a baby to live like a normal man who is unjustly killed. So there is an answer to why would a good God who is all-powerful allow suffering? And his answer is Jesus. Even secular unbelieving philosophers recognize this. Albert Camus, the French philosopher who was no friend of Christianity, still recognized the answer Jesus. The answer Jesus was to the question of evil. He says God's solution to the problem of evil and suffering first ex first in ex was first in experiencing evil and death. The, the God man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be impu entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. That night on Golgotha, that's where he died on the cross, is so important in history of man only because in its shadows the divinity, ostensibly abandoning its traditional privileges, lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. So he's saying God, who was man, lived through and died. And this is why that phrase, why have you forsaken me, is, is and the frightful doubt of Christ on ag in agony. 
Now, it's helpful to know that Camus, I mean, he might not ha- have all the details right about what's really going down, but it's rec- he does recognize that God did not remain separate from his world that experienced so much evil and suffering, but he came and became a man and experienced that evil and suffering firsthand. The Christian knows that God the Son suffered firsthand. One of the names the Bible has for Jesus is the man of sorrows. So do you see, this Christian God doesn't merely know about suffering. He experienced it. This Christian God does not merely know about evil. He experienced it. No other religion has that foundation. No other religion has that basis. No other religion has that that understanding. Jesus, God the Son, was sorrowful. There were times when he was hungry and thirsty. There was times he was without a home. He was mocked and scorned and beaten. You see, he wasn't just aware of evil. He experienced it. And he wasn't just aware of suffering. He experienced the greatest suffering. So what we see in the God of the Bible is that instead of remaining aloof and removed from this evil world full of suffering, he moves in to help. He moves in to save. He moves in to make a difference. That is different. Now, the suffering, what we also need to understand about his suffering, the suffering he, he experienced is the greatest suffering ever inflicted on anyone at any time in any place. And there's a way in which we can say, without being heretical, that this is the greatest injustice ever experienced, where the perfect one, God the Son, who called all things into existence, who spoke and time began and matter sprung into existence, this one was treated as if he was morally responsible for all the sins of his people. This one, Jesus Christ, in coming, decided to take the place of condemned sinners and pay the price of their evil. This is different. See, Jesus wasn't just one who didn't do wrong. He also always did right. And yet, he was treated as if he was evil. He was treated as if he was personally guilty for all the sin that all of his people have ever committed. He bore the sin of others. See, the question we should ask as we look at Jesus is why did God allow such suffering and evil to befall his beloved son? That's the question. Because that's unjust. That seems wrong. He did this to pay the price for humanity's sins. Now that is unexpected. We see this substitution language explicitly throughout the Bible, but I'll just show you two places. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. First the Old, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. That just means sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitution. He paid the price instead of us. The evil we've incurred, because the reality is there's evil in the world. There's natural evil. There's moral evil. 
And we didn't talk about this, but there's evil that we all have in our hearts as well. So if he came in just to destroy all evil in a snap, he'd have to destroy us too. But instead, he experienced, Jesus experienced unimaginable suffering for all of his people, for any who would put faith in him, across every time and in every place. Now just think about that. Think about the, think about your own sin, just the sins you're aware of in your own life and the burden that you feel from time to time when you experience conviction if you're a Christian. You feel the weight of them. Imagine the weight of 10 people. Imagine the weight of the burden of the sins of a hundred, a thousand, a million, a trillion, and beyond. That weight was put on Jesus. God the Son experienced untold, unprecedented suffering for the evil of his people. That's unexpected. God may not rush to explain himself, but he does rush to reveal himself. And that's what we need to see in Jesus Christ. God doesn't often explain himself. He does reveal himself in Christ. And then, lastly, my friend asked me this week, so he died, so what? How's that an answer? It's a great question. Talking to him about Jesus this week, and he said, so what? He died, and he gets it, and he, you know, lived, lived a life like me, and he's, he, you know, he's sympathetic to my troubles. So what? How is that any help? That's a great question. Well, the difference between Jesus, well, the thing is, is that Jesus died, but yet he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And in rising from the dead, he didn't just show, hey, I'm powerful, look what I can do. What he did instead was he rose from the dead and defeated the power of evil, of sin and death. He defeated it. So all evil has now been beaten. Now, you and I, we can't beat evil. Evil beats us. But there is one who beats it, and he beats it by coming back from the dead, and that's Jesus. So now in rising from the dead, anything that he says now, we can say, you know what? He said he was going to die. He rose again. And whatever he says now, we should probably pay attention to. He says he's going to make all things right. And he's going to make all things new. And he's going to take this world that is so broken and compromised by sin and evil and suffering. And he's going to restore it and renew it and make it a place that has no evil and suffering. That's his promise. And because he rose from the dead, we can say, okay, makes sense. Jesus lives, and he promises that he will make every, he will right every wrong, and he will, he will punish every evil. Because evil and suffering are on the way out. They are a feature in this world, but they will not be a feature in the world forever because of Jesus Christ, because he died and rose again. And so this is why what we as Christians want to tell you, if you're here seeking or if you're watching at home, we want to tell you this, that your suffering, when you feel rejection and despair and loneliness and you're bereaved and you're grieving and you're despondent and you are racked with regret, these sufferings, instead of being an invitation for you to say, I don't know that there's a God, are an invitation for you to meet him in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Jesus is the one who can make all, who will one day turn back all evil and destroy it, who will one day stop all suffering and explain to those that are his the grand purposes that we can't understand now. So if you're here or watching at home, I would just plead with you to consider Jesus. 
Not somebody who knew about suffering, but someone who suffered and was completely, completely perfect. So, why does a good God who's all-powerful continue to allow evil and suffering in the world? Number one, he doesn't rush to explain himself, and if he did, we wouldn't really be able to understand. Number two, instead of explaining himself, he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And number three, one day Jesus will make all things right, and the world that we live in will not be marked with, fear, with evil and suffering anymore forever. So that's the answer to why would a good God allow evil and suffering in the world? So let's open the floor for questions if you have any. There are two different ways you can offer questions. One is you can text in your question to the number that's uh, displayed behind me, or if you want to go old school, grab a microphone, you can do that too. Um, don't just yell out your question because everybody, we want to make sure that people who are watching the live stream can hear, and I want to be able to hear, so that's, that's a thing. So if you have a question, um, go ahead and text it in, or just get to that microphone and ask it. I'll receive the questions directly here, or semi-directly, I suppose, if I can figure this out. There we go. Now, if we're not able to get to all the questions uh, that are turned in, because if you like last week, it, or last, the prior service, it took a while for them to start cycling in, we'll look to answer the, all the questions off. If we can't get to it, we'll answer every one um, offline if, um, if we don't have time. So, what questions do you have? All right, here we go. So if God created us to bear his image and his glory, then why or who did he create the animals for? Good question. I can tell you why he created my little dog, and that's to wake me up at 4.30 because she wants to go out. No. Um, that's a good question. God did create mankind in his image, so God created men and women equally in his image, um, and as such... We are to reflect his glory and his purposes in the world. And so the animals actually um, are, you can read this in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the animals are made for mankind. So we are able to use animals. Um, we can use animals. You know, there are animals that are domesticated. There are animals that we can use for food. There are animals that we can use for company and, and the like. And so... Um, animals do not reflect, <clears throat> excuse me, the glory of God in the same way humanity does, but uh, humanity as what are called, like, we're vice regents of God, which is kind of a fancy way to say, we're the bosses of the earth, and um, we're free to use, use animals in a way that is not cruel or uh, unusual punishment, but uh, in the way we see fit, so as representatives of God. Okay. Can you take some time to explain why the problem of evil is not sufficiently answered by other worldviews like atheism or naturalism? And I think it's going to continue here. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so one of the challenges with atheism, which is, if you don't know, that's the, that's the belief that God is not real. Um, well, first of all, usually... A lot of times, now I don't want to caricature anyone. If you're an atheist and you don't believe this, you can come up and we can talk. Um, uh, but a lot of times, one of the reasons atheists are atheists is because of the problem of evil. And so what they would do, and they would say, is that if, like what Hume said, Hume was an atheist. If God is all good, all powerful, he shouldn't um, respond to evil. And so, or he shouldn't allow evil. And so, as Christians, I, I would want to say to the atheist, first of all, if you're frustrated, who are you frustrated at? Um, second of all, um, the God, we see, a cohesive, we see a cohesive history woven throughout the whole Bible to help us understand that God has created all things for his glory. And so there is simply no way we can, we can believe 
that everything in our culture and in our world happened purely by happenstance. And so, in fact, in the academic regions, there are more and more people who are being convinced of intelligent design, but that's another conversation. And so, um, we, I don't think I have enough faith to be an atheist because I would have to, I would have to reject different ideas uh, that just don't fit in with my worldview. Um, they would say that the, uh, the, the design you see in creation is, a, a, it looks like a design, but it's not real. It's, it just mimics a design. And I would say, actually, I don't believe that. The DNA strand has, Bill Gates said, um, the genetic sequence in the DNA strand is more intricate and impressive than any computer program anybody has ever written. And so I would say that fits with my worldview better than an atheistic one. Um, so we'll leave it at that. Um, let's see. Isn't the root of evil sin? What scripture can be provided for us to process this question? Yeah, the root of evil is sin. Um, and I can look with you if you want to have a, your Bible. You can look at Romans chapter 8, and I will show you where we see um, da, 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 where we see uh, the Lord saying that the sin, let's see. See, this is the fun part about you get to see me looking through my Bible. The one I read at home is different than the one I have up here so that I can see it. Um, okay. That's my problem, and it looks, everything's in a different spot. I'm a creature of habit, and so I am, everything's in a different spot. So let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is Paul talking to Christians. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For this creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So verse 21, we see that creation has been subjected to bondage. What does it say? The bondage to corruption. And so that's the effect of sin on all creation. And so if you want to look at I mean, really, the best place to look to process sin and evil and its connection is to look here in Romans chapter 8. And in really all of Paul, you can see throughout Romans and the other books of Paul how sin brought death and then, the, and, and then led to all evil. So original sin, which, is mar which marks every human, um, is something that we all deal with. Every person born is corrupt. We see this. We see this in Romans chapter three. You can read about that there. The, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and so this we can see this in our little kids. When we had small children, I never had to tell them to tell me no or spit at me or hit me to instruct them. They just had that in their hearts, right? Parents, can I hear an amen? Um, that's there, and so corruptions on our hearts, and so that's who we are, and so we're all represented by Adam. Because if we were in Adam and Eve's spot, any one of us, we would all respond in the same way. And so I would look, in fact, for this question, I would look at all of Romans chapter 1 through 3, which describes the problem, how all mankind sin. 3 talks about justification. You can skip ahead. Well, 4 is important as well. You can talk about who are the sons, it's the sons of Abraham. And then chapters 5 through 8 then unpack that as well. So that's probably where I would look to see, um, to, to connect evil and sin and what that looks like on a personal level, what that looks like on a societal level as well. Okay, now they're coming through. What happens to the Jews and others who were tortured and murdered through history and died unsaved? Great question. Um, this, questions like this or questions like, what about those that never heard the gospel? Um, I can say that that's a really difficult question, but one of the things I would say, number one, is this. First of all, we don't ever know the state of someone's soul, number one. Number two, I entrust, I, I know also that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. 
And so I know that he is the one who is going to judge all of mankind, and he is going to do it justly and rightly, and I can entrust something like that to him. I don't know the answer, and I don't know, I don't know how that's all going to work out. I do know that today, here and now, we have the gospel message, and we know it as Christians, and it's our job to go out and tell as many people as we can because those who do not hear will be forever separated from him. Um, okay, Job was rewarded by God after he went through his suffering. What about the people who don't get any reward after their suffering? That's a good question. There are people where in this world and in this life, you're just not going to be able to understand what happened and why, and you're not going to have all your kids restored and you're 401k filled back up and, you know, you're not going to be driving a Lexus or whatever. That's not going to go down. But what I would say is as Christians, instead of looking, so if you're not a Christian, I would say Christians look to the coming world and the sufferings we experience here, we will be more than rewarded there. The sufferings we experience in this life are significant and real, but Paul can say that they are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all compare. Now, the problem we have is I've never been there. I've never been to, to be with the Lord physically, so I can't tell you why it's that way or what it looks like or it's shiny or whatever. I can't do any of that stuff, but I can say that that's true. And so we will actually be, if you follow Jesus and trust him, first of all, none of your suffering will be in vain and for nothing you'll one day you'll understand it and second of all second of all you will be with Jesus and you won't say that was so hard I need to have a five minute you know we need you need to give me ministry here so that I can understand why this went down you're just gonna be glad to be with Jesus and the suffering will be a light and momentary thing uh let's see okay wow here they come um uh, how do I explain why evil is in the world to my child? When you figure it out, let me know. Um, I'm not sure. Like, that's a philosophical question. Why is evil in the world? Could God have created a world without evil? Yes. Did he? No. Why? We don't have that answer. Like, I've mused, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the snake doing there, right? Everything's great. They're having a good time. They're not eating the bad fruit. And a snake comes in. Now, Adam, as the vice regent, he was the one who was supposed to keep the garden, as God told him. Adam, he's standing there when the snake's talking to Eve. He's standing right there with her. He should have grabbed the snake by the face and thrown it out of the garden, but he didn't. He listened, and humanity fell. I don't know why evil is in the world. But I do know that one day evil won't be in the world that sin and death will be destroyed and all evil along with it. Um, but that's very difficult. So what I did with my kids when they would ask about evil is I would point them to Jesus and say, you know what, evil is a part of our world. Evil is a reality that we have to face. When you experience suffering, if you trust Jesus, it will never be for nothing. When you experience suffering, you can look at Jesus and know he's suffered more when you experience suffering and evil, you can say, you can call on Jesus and he will help you. Those things we have as promises. Why do some people suffer, <laughs> suffer worse than others? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we're not given that answer. I'm not, I, I really don't know. Um, I can say maybe... Well, I, for me, I can explain what suffering has done for me in my life. I mean, maybe that would be helpful. I, don't, I wouldn't say that I've suffered more than others. Um, but for me, when I suffer and I'm experiencing hardship, what I do or what it forces me to do is push into God. When I'm doing well and everything's going, you know, everything's easy or as I plan it or as it should be in my mind and I'm not suffering, I'm not... You know, I'm like, you know, God, me and you are good. I'll call you when I need you. You know, I mean, that, I wouldn't say it that way, that crassly, number one, because I'm a Christian, number two, because I'm a pastor, number three, we're at church. But, oh, but that's kind of the attitude that I 
kind of can get. But with suffering, and I feel like, man, everything's pressing in on me. I don't even know how I'm going to make it through the day. I'm just going to stay in bed because my covers have magic powers to keep away everything. I, it pushes me to say, Lord, if you don't help me here, I don't know what I'm going to do. So that's one of the ways suffering helps me. And I think that's one of the ways suffering helps us as Christians. In fact, as Christians, suffering is one of the tools the Lord uses to build us into the people he wants us to be. Now, I wish he would use other means. Listen, I'm going to give you a billion dollars and you're going to be who I want you to be. That's not how it's usually going to work. That's a suffering of a kind, I suppose, but that's not the suffering that most of us receive. Okay. So what you're saying is, there is a purpose in evil even though we might not know it, that it's a mystery. Yes, exactly. Um, And that we're not left alone in it. In the Bible, the Bible rarely gives us reasons why we suffer, but always gives us hope for one who will be with us in our suffering. There's a difference. Jesus promises to be with us and help us and strengthen us and walk with us. He doesn't promise to explain everything to us. Um, Many of my peers believe people are inherently good, not evil, but they are victims of evil, not doers of evil. How would you gently correct that? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it's po- people believe that mankind is, um, many of them, that mankind's good. And so, I mean, really, I, this, I don't mean to sound flippant or crass. Invite them over to watch a two-year-old for, for a few hours. Do I have an amen, parents? I mean, that, seriously, you can't walk out of the, I mean, and it's not like a loving family that's kind and gracious and warm. You know, and this kid is like Attila the Hun. And so you think, where did that come from? That came from their own heart. And so that is the best way that I can see that. I also believe that we can say things like, just because mankind, one of the distinctions that's helpful I've read in some books is, mankind is bent toward evil, but that doesn't mean mankind is as evil as he could be which that's good news too. But all of us have a bend toward evil. Um, So that's how I would gently correct that. I've got a lot here, so I'm trying to go kind of quickly. Scripture says that God had to judge the sin at the fall of man. Wouldn't that be the reason why there is evil in the world? Because mankind sinned and God had to judge sin? Yes, God had to judge the sin, but... Before, the ev- before God had to judge that sin, why was evil here in the first place is the question that I think philosophers, they fight about. Um, and also, that's one of the questions we can't answer. Why was there a snake in the first place? Why? Now, we can offer ki- different kinds of objections we, or answers. We could say, well, the glory of God is seen when we have a fallen creation that is redeemed by the God-man, but that's we don't see that explicitly described in the Bible, why evil is here in this world. We can know for sure that evil will be, will be absent from the world that we live in. What about the Jews who are God's chosen people? It's a good question. I'd say that now anybody, Jew or Gentile, is not saved unless they trust Jesus and Jesus alone. So Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, as Paul says, both for the Jew and the Gentile. Okay, there's three more. If someone has a question and they want to stand up here and go ask, you can. Because I'm having a conversation with my iPad, which is fun. Um, But it's more fun to talk. Aren't you essentially saying that you have to add faith to believe the answers that you gave about evil? Won't unbelievers say that they have to add faith to believe their views as well, making both answers equal? How is this becoming, how does this become a winning argument? Yeah, I mean, I'd say absolutely both sides have to add faith for sure. You have to decide which side has more evidence. No question. And so um, I would say you have to have much more faith to disbelieve Jesus than faith to believe him. I don't believe in blind faith because we have reasons for our faith 
in the scriptures, I believe unbelief is much more blind. But although it masquerades as being, you know, conscientious and, and such, it just isn't. Are natural disasters God's punishment on mankind, like tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes? I would say, here's, one, here's, here's a rule of thumb. If any TV Christian preacher says such and such is God's punishment, stop listening to them because they don't know. The Old Testament prophets, they knew. We don't. What we have in tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes is the effects of natural evil in a fallen world because of sin. We can't say specifically because this hurricane hit this city, therefore that city was needing to be judged. We can't say that. Uh, lastly, do you believe the Bible is the word of God, that it is inerrant? If so, can you give some verses to support this? Yes, I do believe the Bible is the word of God and it is inerrant. And I can, I can say, read it and see the testimony that you have and experience it. That's one of the answers I give. The other answer I would want to give is from the classic text. And some of you who have been around the Bible, you know this text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The gift of life comes from the Word of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That's probably the most, that's the classic text. The other thing you can do if you want to read through the Old Testament is look how many times we see this is the word of the Lord. 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 It's like a broken record. This is the word of the Lord over and over and over and over. The Bible consciously speaks as if it is the word of God because it is. So that's short there. So excellent. If there are more questions, we'll cover those in the weeks to come. Next week, um, we will, we'll communicate what the next question is via the app and our social media accounts soon, next couple days. Um, if, you're, if you're an unbeliever and you, or if you're seeking the Lord, the Lord and you have questions, we have people here who can answer those questions here. You didn't want to ask publicly. That's totally fine. Next week, uh, we'll be right back here, do the same format. We'll ask another question, and we'll look and see what the Bible has to say about that. Until then, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.